0: Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode I'm excited to announce the launch of a new national effort I've been asked to lead Citizens for Free Enterprise. This important cause will be 100% focused on the promotion and preservation of our free enterprise system. If you go down this path of criminalizing this first limit activity, then the next person to get charged would be a circulator, right? If a circulator gets charged, then it's over because no one's going to want to do the business.
1: My expectation is that all the nominees who are ready for an up and down, up or down vote, uh, that we will go ahead and do that. You know, there very well may be some nominees that um, we'll have to take up at a later time frame.
2: The new law is a success for all parties involved, and it proves that the city of Scottsdale can
0: win without the Rio Verde foothills residents losing, so that makes me happy. We believe that contraception is central to a person's privacy, health, well-being, dignity, liberty, equality, and ability to participate in social and economic life. And with me to talk about what's next for former Governor Doug Ducey, a new lawsuit filed based on last year's election and more, our attorney and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera. Good morning, Roy. Good morning. And former chief of staff to Governor Ducey, now with the firm winged victory, Daniel Scarpanato. Welcome, Daniel. Good to see you. So let's start with the lawsuit filed yesterday by Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer suing Carrie Lake for defamation. Daniel, this 2022 election just won't like it won't end.
1: I know. I know. Well, and I'm not an attorney. We've got an attorney here. So I defer to him on the, the legal merits. I do know that uh, I think that Stephen Richer is an attorney and I think a smart and serious person. So I would not want to be on the other side side of this, although I've heard it's very hard to prove these kinds of cases. I think the broader issue here to me is um, the real fault line within the republican party right now i think this is a big problem uh, globally not just in arizona but arizona has really been the epicenter and i think these fights are going to be a real impediment to republicans winning races getting people through primaries and general elections so roy how hard is it to prove defamation in court it can be very hard I mean in particular it's hard
2: when the person that's been defamed here or at least allegedly been defamed here is a public figure because you have to actually prove actual malice right. it's a higher the standard. person it's so a much higher standard now of course we have you know tweets and I mean all kinds of public communications from carrier Lake um you know since last November or November 2022 about richer about other election administrators I mean we've been subjected as witnesses at least you know as the public Uh, to these lies that Carrie Lake has perpetuated, these conspiracy theories, things that have been uh, proven false in court already, uh, been proven false uh, by reporting. uh, And she continues to say it. And at the center of all this is an actual human being, which is Stephen Richer and other election officials or county uh, board of supervisors, for example. Uh, And so when I look at this, I see somebody who who has been defamed, you know, somebody whose character has been disparaged, has been accused of doing things illegal uh, by Carrie Lake. And so it is going to be difficult. But if it goes on
0: and proceeds, the discovery is going to be really fascinating, actually. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I wonder if on some level – and, you know, we've not spoken with Recorder Richard. I don't want to try to get into his head or get into his motives or anything. But I wonder if on some level, just getting this to trial and having – maybe having Carrie Lake on the witness stand being questioned by Richard's lawyers – even if he doesn't end up winning the case, is getting the chance to ask her these questions under oath? Does that help th- anything in some way? Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I haven't spoken to Recorder Richard either, but I suspect that he's not doing this because he thinks there's going to be some significant, you know, civil penalty, some payout by Carrie Lake to him for you know whatever he was damaged related to this defamation. I think he's doing it more to prove a point and to you know, as you say allow the you know the public to kind of see, you know, these were the lies that were told, this is why they, they were told, and she knew these were lies. And I think that's really the purpose
0: of the of the lawsuit. Daniel, you reference sort of a, a chasm in the GOP at the mm-hmm. moment. Can you foresee maybe Republicans who are not aligned with Kerry Lake, maybe more in the Doug Ducey, Stephen Richer wing of the party, maybe trying to help him or get involved themselves in this lawsuit in some way?
1: I'm not sure, Mark. I do think the path forward for Republicans is to relinquish themselves of some of these issues. And I actually think, you know, the way Governor Ducey handled it was he did certify the election. Um, And then he stopped talking about 2020 and he focused on on tax cuts and other things that people on the left didn't love. But um, I think what we've seen is people on both sides of this schism uh, within the party who almost just keep talking about it. And that's not to disparage him moving forward with this lawsuit. I I think uh, some of the things that Roy said are accurate. uh, But. I do think that as a party, we've got to move beyond this. And uh, I just don't think it's this is helping uh, Republicans win elections.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if if even if you might necessarily agree and think that he's right on the merits, the timing of it leading into next year's elections, the sort of the politics of it, does that make it harder for Republicans, especially in primaries where sort of the MAGA wing, the Cary Lake wing has shown that they have an advantage in this state.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that the, the, the reality is that um, that I, I don't know the recorder's plans. I think that uh, this probably complicates his his reelection yeah, he's if he up next decides year too. to do it, and if you recall – he was really kind of no one thought he would beat Adrian Fontes in twenty twenty. Um and he did. And and at the time he was himself framed as an election denier because he did an audit on I think it was the twenty eighteen election. Yeah, for the
0: state Republican Party.
1: Correct. So um so you've seen this evolution. I think that um that these races are, are, are going to be really hard to win in Maricopa County without good candidates like Rachel Mitchell, who, you know, may also face a primary. And, you know, we need, we need quality candidates. Maricopa County is going to be very hard to win moving forward.
0: Roy, do you think that this in any way, keeping conversation about election denialism and Kerry Lake in 2024 going, does this help Democrats next year, do you think? I mean, I think it does
2: if you're just looking at it purely politically. I mean, I'll just speak for myself that I'm tired of talking about it. I mean, I'm an election lawyer, you know, by practice, right? And I just wish we would all move on for the good of the country, the good of the state. But that's just not what's happening. And I do think that it does help Democrats um, to keep talking about it, because I don't think Arizonans want to talk about it. I mean, they hear it, I think, to the extent that they think that, you know, Republican Trump kind of related Republicans that are saying this stuff are liars. At the very, They may think that at the very least, they're just tired. They're rolling their eyes. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear about, you know, economic policy, for example, or things like that that are affecting their everyday lives. So it does
0: help as long as this keeps going for the Democrats. So something else that will be coming up leading up to next year's election, we heard from, uh, Danny, your former boss uh, this week, uh, former Governor Doug Ducey. A lot of folks have been saying, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. Now we know what he's going to do next. He's going to be uh, leading an effort to uh, register voters. It's a voter registration effort for folks who are supportive of the free enterprise system. Um, this is obviously something, as he said, that's important to him. He talked about it in his business background at Coldstone. What kind of eff- impact can these kinds of efforts have in terms of more voter registration specifically targeted around a, a particular philosophy as opposed to an interest group or a political party or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I'm very happy for him. I think this is the the perfect fit for him given his background and the issues that he really cares about. And, and I think voter registration is part of it. I think it's bigger than that. I think that uh, Governor Ducey sees that there's been um, – An erosion of advocacy and and support around uh, basic free enterprise and free market principles and that uh, I think his viewpoint is that it's really what lifts people out of poverty um, can provide people a better path it's one of the great things about America so I think this will be a larger effort focused on nationally how do we both register voters but also galvanize voters and frankly the Democrats have done a very good job at this kind of thing in a number of swing states and when you look at how the presidential election has gone um, and when you look at the these Senate races we're talking about a handful of states and a handful of votes you know you're talking about 10,000 votes in Arizona and in in Georgia and in Pennsylvania and so I think an effort like this really can, move the needle, and I think it's needed on the center right.
0: There has been some written over the last, excuse me, let's say several months or year or so about how a percentage of the Republican Party doesn't really seem to be free market. Like they Mm -hmm. want, they're advocating for more government intervention. So I wonder if part of Governor Ducey's efforts might be to, yes, register voters, but also Convince them that the GOP is still the party of free enterprise.
1: I hope so. I mean, I think you're right, and I think a large part of that has been that no one's been talking about it, no one's been advocating for it, and uh, and so I think that voice is needed, and I think no one better than him who has a a great business background and a background as a governor being able to persuade swing voters and independents in a competitive state like this to to lead that kind of effort nationally.
0: Roy, do you think it's safe to say that this will not be the only voter registration effort going on in the <laughs> in the next year or yeah. so?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the importance of Arizona as a swing state for a long time, but this next cycle, 2024, because of the presidential, because of the Senate race, again, here in Arizona, um, it's going to be one of the most expensive, most, you know, sought after political, you know, uh, battlegrounds that we have in the country. I mean, millions upon millions of dollars are going to be spent here. So there's gonna be a lot of voter registration ev- uh, efforts. And I think, you know, there are- Leaving aside having quality candidates, there are ways to win elections, right? There's mechanics to it, um, and voter registration is one of them. You know, I kind of laughed when Carrie Lake announced her ballot chasing program, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, that's what you know modern campaigns do all the time. That's how you win elections. So, you know, those things, I suppose, could be good for. Uh, for Republicans. My other sort of take though on this is, you know, political, I guess, when it comes to Ducey's announcement, which is to say that I guess this means he himself is not going to run for Senate. And, you know, partially because of something Daniel said earlier, which is that, you know, former Governor Ducey doesn't want to talk about election denialism. He probably be, would have been one of the better candidates in a general election for Senate. Uh, But he's not running and nobody like him, I think, is going to run. So we're going to be left with probably a Kerry Lake, which only benefits the
0: Democrats. Do you think that this forecloses him running for office at some point down the road?
1: Well, I think it's very flattering that despite him having said for the last two years he's not running for Senate, people still said he might run for Senate. So he was pretty clear I don't think he wanted to do the job. Um, and uh, I think it was Lamar Alexander who was governor of Tennessee and then senator from Tennessee who said the most unhappy people in America are former governors who are now U.S. senators. <laughs> so I think this is a great fit for Governor Ducey. I think it's really what his passion is and what he wants to do. And and he wasn't a career politician. He had a whole career career before being in office. So for him I I don't think he's one who who his value or his worth is defined by being in office and we got plenty of people in Arizona who who do have that viewpoint so um, so I really respect, that he comes at it from a different perspective.
0: All right. My guests today are Daniel Scarponato, former chief of staff to Governor Ducey and former congressional staffer Roy Herrera. Roy, since you are the resident election attorney on the panel, let me ask you about the ruling this week from the state Supreme Court dealing with uh, petition signatures. It was a case brought uh, by a couple of groups on the right trying to uh, make sure that uh, basically that that groups, companies that that collect signatures don't pay. Per signature, which is against the law, but they were worried that some companies were maybe getting around that. Right. So the legislature, I think, a couple of years ago at this point, you know, passed
2: a prohibition on paying per signature for signature gathering for ballot initiatives. You know, and it was part of, I think, a, a number of other pieces of legislation that Republicans passed to make it harder to get on the ballot, you know, for a ballot initiative. And there's been, you know, I think a bit of a, the signature gathering firms that do this, um, a bit of a quarrel over, well, what does this ban mean, whether this is constitutional or not, whether it violates First Amendment rights, for example. I think what we see now with the Supreme Court decision is that the ban on per-signature compensation is constitutional that does allow it to go forward, but there are ways to sort of get around that. There are ways to compensate well-performing signature gatherers. Um, So I think that's probably a good thing for ballot initiatives for signature gathering firms, but there are a whole host of other obstacles still
0: to get on the ballot as a ballot initiative. It's very expensive. Yeah, Daniel, I mean, does this move the needle, do you think, in terms of groups trying to get measures on the ballot?
1: Well, uh, like Roy said, it's gotten incredibly expensive. um, And I think it should be difficult to change our constitution or to pass something at the ballot. I think what we've seen in states like Arizona that have easy ballot access, Colorado would be another example, Oregon, where A lot of -of out-of-state groups come and and run things and get get them on the ballot, and I think there's been a lot of bad policy um, that's done that way. And unlike the legislative process, it's then incredibly challenging to deal with uh, any kind of unintended consequences. So I don't know that this is going to solve everything, Um, and I do think that these signature firms will find ways – around it, but um, it it feels like this process overall has a lot of flaws to it.
0: Roy, you talked about, both of you talked about how expensive it is. Does it mean, do you get the sense that this ruling means that while you cannot pay a gatherer per signature, you could say, for example, like the signature gatherers who collect the most signatures, the top three of them, get X dollars as a bonus or something like that. Is that kind of what the court is saying is OK? That seems to be the case. That seems to be how
2: people are interpreting the ruling and in, in perhaps one way that signature gathering firms are going to kind of get around this uh, to, again, incentivize signature gathering. But, you know, just last November, um, you know, we had Arizona voters uh, pass, you know, a couple of measures imposing the single subject rule on statutory initiatives, a supermajority rule on, on initiatives that would impose new taxes. Right. So, I mean, there are, again, you know, a bunch of other things that are going to make it more difficult to, to get on the ballot, which if you're staring at, you know, a couple of ballot initiatives next year, like, for example, one related to abortion, those are the kinds of things that need to be solved for if you're one of the proponents.
0: Right. And Daniel, as you said, these are very expensive to do. So do you think that this ruling makes it more expensive because it means that signature gathering companies can pay these bonuses? Or maybe does it make it less expensive because the gatherers might be – a smaller number of them maybe might be more motivated to collect a lot of signatures?
1: Well, I have friends who work in this space, and uh, I would say they – no matter what side of the aisle they're on – They're all capitalists, and they're all in this to make money. And so I think, yes, the price will only go up, 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 and up.
0: All right. Um, There's been a lot of talk this week about another uh, type of money, this being per diem payments at the state legislature. The lawmakers uh, were in session a couple days last week. They're off until the end of July when – Supposedly they're going to adjourn their session. Uh, There have been some numbers bandied back and forth about how much this is costing the state in per diem for these six or seven weeks while lawmakers are not in session. Daniel, do you think there needs to be some kind of change to the system where it's not maybe up to lawmakers whether or not they want to opt out of getting this per diem, this daily payment, but maybe if they're not in session for a certain amount of time, maybe the per diem stop or something like that?
1: No, I actually think some of the numbers out there have been misleading because, in fact, uh, lawmakers do collect per diem uh, even when the legislature isn't in session if they go down to the Capitol. And so uh, so these aggregate numbers that are being tossed around um, are kind of flawed in and of themselves. And okay, if you're in Maricopa County, you're getting $10 a day as a legislator. So I don't think uh, this is I don't think anyone here is hitting the jackpot. I think that the uh, rural legislators, I mean, if you are in Yuma, some of these some of these counties are larger than certain American states. Right. So I don't really think that this is the problem in terms of waste in government. I think you get what you pay for. And if anything, I think, you know, we probably should be looking overall at how much all of our elected officials are compensated, although I know that's not a popular opinion.
0: Optically, is it bad though for lawmakers to be? Obviously, some of them do continue to work during this time, and some are coming to the Capitol. But some of them are not. Some of them are doing their regular jobs, or you know, in their district. Is it a bad look to be collecting this money if you're outside of Maricopa County, $119 a day for not really doing anything?
1: You know, I, I don't. I I worked in the legislature. I I dealt with the legislature when I was in the governor's office. I think there's good people on both sides of the aisle. And I, I do think they work. I, I, I. It's not universal, but I mean, I don't think that anyone down there um, on either side of the aisle is is doing this job to make money. I don't think that they're staying in session to make money. Frankly, I think the Republicans are staying in session to provide a check on the executive branch. Um, so I, I don't think that it's ten dollars a day or a hundred some dollars a day that's that's driving uh, this longer session. Roy,
0: we've heard from a number of Democrats who are not necessarily thrilled that they're still in session based on what Daniel just said and have sort of decried this, uh, you know, the ongoing per diem. We also haven't seen many, if any, Democrats say, you know what, that's okay. I don't need it. I don't want it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I agree with Daniel in that compensation for legislators
2: is something that needs to be looked at, and nobody wants to do that because it's so unpopular politically. But it is a, a sort of a question of you get what you pay for, and I think that you know that needs to be revisited. Maybe we can even bring in some of the signature gathering for initiative compensation structure. <laughs> I like it. something I like, like you know, synergy here. I yeah, I like exactly. It. Like a, a bill gets signed into law, you get a bonus or something. I don't know, but uh, but I do think the the larger question is like, why are we still in session? I mean, that's to me is what's so confusing at the end of the day. I mean. Leadership has said that they're not going to take on any other substantive legislation and the only real reason we're still in session is related to director nominations and that whole process, which is a whole separate uh, topic. But it seems to me a little bit silly that we don't have like an end date
0: on on when, when this is going to be done and these people are still getting, you know, getting paid. So among the work that was done during the session on the ninth floor was a lot of vetoes, a hundred, I think the number is 143 vetoes that Governor Hobbs had, which shattered records. Um, We had, you know, sort of during the session, we had talked about, you know, joking, what's the over under on the number of vetoes? Are you surprised that the number was what it was this year? Not
2: really. I mean, I think a number of those bills and I was at an event, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, where uh, President Peterson, you know, admitted that, or I think it was actually Speaker Toma that admitted that a lot of these things are because the caucus wants the, to see the veto. They, you know, they believe in a particular piece of legislation. They want the governor to veto it because they know she disagrees. A number of others, I think, are you know, probably a lack of bipartisanship, a lack of actual communication. I mean, it's a two-way street, right? I mean, the the legislature needs to be willing to cooperate with the executive and vice versa. There's new leadership on the ninth floor uh, with this governor that I think is going to, you know, at least result in more more communication uh, with Republican leadership. And hopefully that will mean less vetoes. Uh, But I'm not
0: surprised that this is where we ended up. Daniel, what is the importance of the staff around a governor when it comes to working with the legislature, try to maybe minimize the number, of of bills that
1: have to get vetoed. It's hugely important. And obviously, the politics of the Capitol are are different now than when when I was down there working for Governor Ducey. But I think that uh, the staff is hugely important. I think that uh, Chad Campbell is a real pro the governor's newly hired chief of staff. Um, I I think that is going to uh, result in Um, a more of a strategy from the ninth floor. I mean, the vetoes are one thing. What I think there's a universal feeling in uh, around the Capitol and political circles that nobody really knows what Governor Hobbs wants to accomplish. What are her three priorities? And I'm not sure that anyone could articulate what those are. So I think, you know, there are quality folks, Jen Laredo, um, ben Henderson, strategic thinkers up there on the ninth floor. And I think that really needs to be their charge is what does she want to do and accomplish? And the only way you can get the legislator, legislature to work with you is if you put that vision forward um, and and put that out there. Forgive me for asking a question about next year's
0: session before this one is even over, but would you anticipate that given what you just said, there would be fewer vetoes next year or... It's an election year. So, you know, some of those issues might be coming
1: back up. I think it depends on what tact they want to take. Is their priority to try to engage heavily in 2024 and flip the legislature? Or is their goal to set her up for success for a reelect in 2026? And if that's the goal, then I would say I would really spend the interim coming up with a strategy and trying to have a successful legislative session where she could campaign on being a centrist, working across party lines and getting some things done on homelessness, water, some of the big issues that really aren't partisan. Um, But that's really up to them of, you know, what's their goal? And Roy, certainly plenty of big
0: issues left on the table from this session that could be worked on next year. Absolutely. I mean, the thing,
2: too, that ne- that's going to be different in next session, and we just saw JLBC, you know, estimates last week about how our, you know, our revenues are way off in comparison to last year. So we had a budget surplus that all was essentially spent in this year's budget process. So next year, we're not going to have any that we may be facing budget cuts, actually, and that's going to make it very difficult, I think, a very difficult session. But what I'd be curious to see, and I agree with Daniel, I mean, Chad Campbell's a much more strategic thinker, and what I'd be curious to see is how the budget process is used as a, a piece of leverage by the governor's office. I don't think that really happened this time around, but I think next year it will, to try to get some of these other things done, water in particular,
0: uh, going forward. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Roy Herrera, Daniel Scarpinato, thanks for the conversation, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.